You ever find yourself lying in bed, staring at the crack in your ceiling, thinking, what am I doing? Is this all there is to life? Um, you know, the Apostle Paul talking about this and, and the question of, are we doing what God wants us to do with our lives, or have we lost the path? He has this verse in Ephesians 2. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so Paul very clearly here affirms in, in other places this idea that, that God has stuff for us to do based on your gifts, your capacity, the opportunities he's given you, your personality, uh, how he's wired you. There are things he's prepared for us to do in advance that we are actually invited to cooperate with God in his work in the world. We're meant to join in, to actually participate. And again, on the one hand, I find that profoundly encouraging that God would choose someone like me. On the other hand, it can be problematic because how do I know I'm doing the things God intends for me to do? Or again, if I'm, if I'm off track somehow. Of course, one of the challenges in all of this is we get busy with our own lives. We have our own dreams. We have our own goals and ambitions. And we set out from a very early age trying to accomplish our goals and our dreams and to fulfill them. And if we're not careful, months or even whole years can go by without us stopping to ask, huh, I wonder if I'm doing actually this stuff, if I'm doing what God created me to do. Um, several years ago in Florida, there was a dog race, uh, the kind that they have at tracks or casinos. And the dogs are, of course, trained to chase an electronic rabbit around the course. This rabbit always needs to stay ahead of the dogs and just out of reach to keep them going, which is kind of a cruel trick, if you ask me. Well, one night, the rabbit broke down, which meant the dogs actually caught the rabbit. Uh, this had never happened before. And the funny thing is the dogs had no idea at all what to do. They're jumping around. They're leaping. They're yelping. They're barking. They are totally confused because that's like not supposed to happen. I wonder if that's actually a picture, though, of a lot of us. We work so hard to catch the rabbit in our lives, whether that's fame or beauty, or success, or a bigger house, or whatever it is. And we finally catch the rabbit, and then we're kind of left with this, this thud of, is that it? Now what am I supposed to do? This really isn't what I thought it would be. I want to look at a very well-known story this morning of Saul, Paul, the apostle, his conversion. And it's essentially the defining moment in Paul's life when he realizes he had been, in fact, chasing the wrong rabbit. At first glance, we'll find that Saul's conversion, it's, it's actually so dramatic and so unreal, it's almost hard to relate to. Like, what does that have to do with my life? Turns out, quite a bit. Uh, I'm drawing here from N.T. Wright's very, very well done biography of the Apostle Paul called Paul. Good title. Um, we actually don't know for sure what he looked like, so that's just a guess. I'll come back to that in a moment. But what happens if you do a little bit of work and you read the New Testament carefully, both Paul's own writings and then Acts, which is written by Luke, talking about the events of the early church. If you read that carefully, you end up with a much more three-dimensional, 
um, relatable human picture of the Apostle Paul than maybe you expected to find. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and I just want to invite you to settle into this story. Again, I'm going to ask you to do a little work with me, and just, just settle into the story without worrying about where this is going. Hopefully, I'll remember to make some connections, okay? Saul shows up near the beginning of the life of the early church. The context is this new Jesus movement is growing, and it's increasing in numbers, and this is very important. They're all Jewish believers at first. Jewish people are putting their faith in Christ, who they believed was crucified and risen from the dead. But by and large, the majority of Jews do not like this development. In fact, Christians weren't even called Christians for a while. At first, they were simply Jewish people who believed Jesus was the Messiah. That's all it is. Jewish people believed in Jesus. And so the response from Judaism was to see this new movement not as a brand new religion. They didn't think of it like that. Instead, they saw all this Jesus stuff as like a, a sect, like a heresy, a branch, an offshoot uh, of, of Judaism. And it was a sect they thought was probably not going to go anywhere at, at all. But as the Jesus movement continued to grow, it didn't take very long before this gained enough momentum where these believers in Jesus began to be persecuted, widespread, a widespread effort to get rid of this annoying sect, this annoying little heresy called uh, the Jesus movement. So we pick this up in Acts chapter 9. Verse 1, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, against followers of Jesus. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, again, they weren't called Christians, this is the name of Jesus' followers, incidentally, where we get common way, like our name, followers of the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Saul is here. He's knocked off his donkey onto his, he's knocked off, he's knocked off his donkey. You got it. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So Saul sees this light that is so powerful it blinds him. He hears this voice from heaven. This experience for sure is so significant, it changes him forever. And he goes into the city and he meets a man named Ananias. And three days later, Saul re recovers his sight and is baptized as a follower of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 9, in the very same chapter, it says, Saul then goes immediately into Damascus, into the synagogues, where his plan before was to show up and find out if there are any Jesus people. And instead of that, he begins preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So you can imagine these people who've heard of Saul, maybe even they knew he was coming, he's, he's going to show up, he's going to get rid of their little problem and run these Christians off like he had done in the past. It's a big surprise to them then when Paul shows up, Saul, in the synagogue and says, can I have everyone's attention? What's he going to say? He says, I have an announcement. Jesus, yeah, is the Messiah. They're like, what happened to this guy? Now, we need to talk for a moment about why the voice didn't call him Paul and also what he was doing on the road to Damascus that day because either way you look at it, one way or another, he, he really should not have been on the road that day. So basically, the voice called him Saul because that was Paul's name, one of his names. Um, Saul is his Jewish name. It's his Hebrew name. We say Saul. In Hebrew, it's Shaul. But remember, Saul is also a Roman citizen. He's grown up in two very different cultures, but simultaneously. And so as a Roman citizen, chances are Paul also had one of those fancy triple Roman names that you learned about if you took Latin in high school. So one of his names would have been Paul. That's the Greek, the Roman name. And we don't have record of possibly his other two names. A lot of times with these Roman names, what would happen is one or two of the three would stick. And you just kind of think of the person. Uh, we see this in history. For example, most people today, we only know basically two of Gaius Julius Caesar's three names. We only know one, for most of us, of Marcus Junius Brutus's name. Well, the New Testament does this as well. It has different names sometimes for the same person. For example, Peter is sometimes called Petros from the Greek. Uh, other times he's called by the Semitic Cephas. This is what happens when you have two cultures trying to kind of battle this out. Interestingly, when it comes to Saul, did you know that he doesn't change his name to Paul at his conversion? Now, when does he go by Paul? He begins going by Paul when he launches out on his missionary journeys to Romans, to, to Gentiles. Uh, you actually see he continues by Saul all the way until Acts, the middle of Acts chapter 13, which we miss this, but in fact, years have passed from his point of conversion till when he changes his name to Paul. Now, a couple other things. Saul, Paul, wasn't born down here in Jerusalem. He was born up here in a city called Tarsus, which was a well-known university town, actually, in the first century. He was born Jewish, but again, into a very, very Roman world. According to Acts, he was born a Roman citizen, which gave him a trump card that he would, in fact, play from time to time when it was to his advantage. Here's what I want you to know about Saul, though. Saul was not just a secularized, nominal Jew. He's not just Jewish in name only or just Jewish around the holidays like at Christmas and Easter. He is all in, okay? He's, a, he's 100% bought in to Judaism. In fact, he was actually sent away to Jerusalem as a young man to receive his religious education. Apparently, he had relatives in the holy city of Jerusalem. Acts mentions that. 
It's possible that young Saul went to, to stay with these relatives. He's far away from home in Jerusalem as he's you know, receiving his education, his religious training. But it's actually in Jerusalem, and we'll see this in a minute, that Saul, not only did he succeed, he actually excelled at the feet of a very important, very impressive Pharisee rabbi teacher guy by the name of Gamaliel. And I want you to remember the name Gamaliel. Now, as far as kind of climbing the ranks, rising in Jewish leadership, as far as that goes, you would think that not having been born in Jerusalem, that that would be a disadvantage for him. It's like someone trying to break into acting or Hollywood, but they live in Topeka or something. Not the case, though. Remember the, the Roman world? There are Jews living all over the Roman world. For example, Alexandria was another very famous hub of Jewish culture and thought. The great Jewish philosopher Philo comes from Alexandria. So there are influential people from all over the empire. We do know this, and there's extensive evidence from both Paul's own writings as well as, again, Acts, which chronicles these events. What we know is that Saul, Paul, was deeply involved in Pharisaic Judaism. That is a group of religious leaders who believe that the Torah, that the Old Testament law should be applied to every area of life, no exception. So Paul is all in on this view uh, of, of um, Pharisaic Judaism. In Galatians 1.14, he himself writes, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Remember that kid in school who got all A's? Who did all the extra credit, who was always teacher, teacher, pick me, to, you know, the teacher's pet? Remember that person? That's Paul, okay? He's an overachiever. He's distinguished himself already at a young age. This is a young man who for sure is going places. The other important thing about Saul at this point is that Saul, the Jesus follower, the believer now, even after, even after his conversion experience, this is very important, and this is a little bit of a shift for some of us, Saul... Saul still thought of himself as a Jew because, again, it wasn't a new religion. It's just a Jew who believes in Jesus as the fulfillment, as the Messiah of, of Judaism. Acts chapter 15. Some of us, that's a new category, that you could be a Pharisee and a believer in Jesus. Acts 15 has this casual kind of comment. Then some of the believers, some of the Jesus followers, who belong to the party of the what? Pharisees. So this is where Paul finds his home, where Saul identifies with. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, talking about himself, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have, present tense, more. And then he goes on and he lists his reasons. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Paul is saying, I am as Jewish as it gets. What this means is that Paul did not completely abandon his old religion for a new one. He didn't write off Judaism as something that he had like left behind, okay? Christianity for Paul did not replace Judaism. It, it fulfilled it. 
So, what does Paul mean then when just a few verses later in the same passage, he talks, it sounds like he's talking kind of negatively about, I don't know, Judaism or his accomplishments or whatever. He says in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And so my question is, what's the loss he's talking about? What's the garbage? Again, he gives us a speech in Acts, and we have a clue about how Paul sees himself. He says in Acts 22, I was a Jew. As in, no, I am a Jew today, right now. And then he goes on and he then speaks in the past tense. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So I just want you to see that going back to Philippians, Paul regards himself as a Jew right up into the present moment. This is a very important distinction. It's actually... Saul's accomplishments that he regards as worthless, not Judaism. He views his past achievements now through a new lens, and he says, in comparison to Christ, these old accomplishments are actually rubbish, are pointless. It's a paradigm shift. I just want you to see he's not replacing one thing with another. It's not like Paul was into um, astrology, you know, the horoscopes and all that, and then he has an awakening. He's like, that, this is dumb, and I don't believe in any of this stuff because now I know science. That, it's, not a, it's not a replacement. It's more like Paul was a student of classical Newtonian physics, okay, Judaism. And then he comes to discover at a later point in life Einstein and like quantum physics and things. And so for Paul, this shift opens up a new understanding of the, of the world, it opens up a new understanding that only makes the old understanding pointless if the old claims to be all there is, which is what Paul's saying is not true. And so, again, it's Paul's accomplishments that he counted as rubbish. So, a very, very important point. What Paul gave up to become a Christian was not Judaism. What he gave up to become a Christian was his career. He let go of a very promising rising career. And as we're about to see, he did this at the very moment he was about to pull off the biggest career move of his entire life. He had in place the political mechanism, the maneuver that would lock him in as a renowned Jewish leader, not just for that day, but possibly for all time. Back to where we started. Why was Saul on the road to Damascus? The simple answer from the text is, of course, that he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. But here's a question we never stop to ask. Why would Paul think that was his job? Is Paul a member of the temple guard, people whose job and role it is to enforce the religious Jewish law? He's not. This is actually not in his job description 
at all. They had people who did that. So is, is Saul some kind of a, a Pharisee, like a fixer? Like a Sopranos, Mafia? I mean, what's he doing? Now, there's a big clue about this from Paul when later on he's talking about these days, these early days. And he slips into a way of talking about the past, the way that a young student or a recent graduate would talk. Remember, he says, talking about this time in his life, he says in Galatians, oh yeah, back then, I was advancing in Judaism very quickly, beyond many of my own peers, in fact. We're also told that Saul, who was present at the stoning of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, that Saul was standing there at that time, and he was a young man. In his speech later in the book of Acts, Paul defines his pre-Christian days, again, by talking about where he studied uh, and with whom he studied. I studied under Gamaliel. Paul was a very advanced student. His mentor, Gamaliel the rabbi, was so famous that, did you know that he's still revered in Judaism to this day? In fact, the Jewish Mishnah, which is written centuries after this, says this, since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. Saul's mentor, Gamaliel, was the most famous rabbi of a generation. According to one source, he was the president of the Sanhedrin, like the ruling class who made final decisions for Israel. And guess who Saul is? Gamaliel's up-and-coming protege. By the way, this is still 40 years before Rome would come in and sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple and forever change the face of Judaism. At this time, there's still peace, although a bit tenuous, a bit fragile with Rome. But Saul, and I just want you to imagine this. Remember that Saul, not only is, a, is he a highly trained Jewish Pharisee, he's also a Roman citizen. He kind of has the best, best of both worlds. We know from his letters that he had mastered classical Greek. We know from his writing that he was an expert in Greco-Roman philosophy and rhetoric, and he was a very powerful communicator in the tools and the culture of his day. What would have happened if a rising star like Saul had actually succeeded his mentor? What if Saul had actually taken his place after Gamaliel at the top of the pyramid as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class? That's likely where Saul was headed. He would have had a ton of power and influence. When we meet Saul in Acts, he's young. What this means is he doesn't quite have enough credentials. He's still trying to make his way. You know how a young person does that and try to kind of prove yourself and make our way in the world? When he wants to go to Damascus to persecute Christians, he knows his own authority isn't enough because why? He's not a member of the temple guard. He hasn't been sent to arrest anybody. It's not his job. But this is a very big clue about his position, his influence, and his status. We read in Acts 9.1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters. 
How many of you have access to like the Pope? It's true. Saul needs letters of recommendation to carry out his plan against the church. He needs that because it's not in his job description. But don't miss the fact that he's thought well enough of, he's well enough connected, he's able to get the green light. And so here's my my main point so far, and I, I hope you're starting to get this picture. Saul is a young man with a very bright future. His outlook is very promising. Everyone, even the high ups, see all of his potential. And so I just want you to know, it wasn't like Saul came from obscurity. It wasn't like he left Judaism so that he could become a big fish in like a really small pond, this new Jesus thing. No, 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 no. He was already a very big fish in a very large pond. Again, the teaching and the reputation of Gamaliel, his mentor, stretch into the 21st century. Which means the words of Saul of Tarsus could have been immortalized in the same way. If he had been left to himself, chances are that Orthodox Jews today might be speaking about Saul of Tarsus with the same renown, the same regard that they speak of Gamaliel the Wise, or Hillel, or Shammai, or any of these other legendary Jewish leaders. Everyone good so far? Here's the problem for Saul. When your mentor stands as tall in the spotlight as Gamaliel, the man, right? How do you get out from under their shadow? How do you make a name for yourself? For us today, you'd have to publish some major work of your own, perhaps disagreeing with your predecessor or adding somehow to previous scholarship. Or in a different field, you'd have to pull off some daring merger. You'd have to grab some opportunity that your mentors missed. Or you'd have to lead some industry-shaking startup. This, I think explains why Saul of Tarsus was on that road to Damascus to persecute Christians. The other thing that we know about Gamaliel, the mentor, in the book of Acts tells us this, that Gamaliel took a very laid-back approach toward this new Jesus movement, toward these Christians. There's actually a scene in Acts 5 where these Jesus guys, um, Peter and John, they're arrested, and it says that, that the people headed up by the Sanhedrin. And and who's on the Sanhedrin? Who's the president of the Sanhedrin? Gamaliel, right? So he's there. They want to put Peter and John to death. Gamaliel, who has all this influence, stands up and he says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men, Peter and John. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, meaning these pesky Jesus followers, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, 
you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel's stance on the Christians is basically no persecution, no fuss, no mess, no stress. This thing is probably going to fizzle out like the countless movements before we've seen come and go. And then the next line says, because again, who he is, the next line, verse 40 says, his speech persuaded them, which is Bible for like everyone shut up and sat down. So he calms everybody down, but only for a short time. This is Acts chapter 5, and the, the stance is, let's just let the Christians be. It's going to amount to nothing. Let's not waste our energy. By the time you get to Acts chapter 7, two chapters later, that is no longer the view of the Sanhedrin. Their anger, their impatience had reached a boiling point, culminating or kicking off with the murder, the stoning of Stephen. And guess who's there throwing the rocks? The Sanhedrin, with Saul standing there as a young man holding their coats. I think that Saul, this young and this ambitious teacher's pet, I think he saw in this moment an opportunity to differentiate himself from Gamaliel. He saw a way to make a name for himself that would immediately earn the gratitude and the respect of the Sanhedrin, right? The people who want to get rid of these Christians. And Gamaliel's the one saying, no, 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 let's just wait. Let's take a patient approach. And so Saul decides he would, he would take charge of handling this Christian problem, this new and dangerous heresy, according to the Jews. He would distinguish himself in this way from his master, Gamaliel. And in the same time, he would win over the favor of everyone who wants to see this happen. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's a brilliant move. Again, at the stoning of Stephen, Acts portrays Saul in a minor role, holding the coats, while the Sanhedrin takes part in the execution. That's Acts chapter 7. Guess what happens in Acts chapter 8? The beginning of 8, he's becoming a bit more zealous. Saul's becoming a bit more of an activist. It says in verse 1, Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then the very next chapter, chapter 9, Saul is leading this expedition to do more of the same in Damascus. As I said, he doesn't have enough authority to do this on his own, this kind of activity. He needs to go above, right? He needs to get a reference letter from a higher up. And again, he's well enough connected to be able to get it. And... Don't miss the fact that his letter of recommendation comes not from his mentor, Gamaliel, who could have done that, but what's Gamaliel's stance? No, 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 we're not doing that. He goes way over Gamaliel's head to the leader of the rival party himself, the leader of the Sadducees, who sat no other than the high priest. He goes straight to the top. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters 
to the synagogues in Damascus so that he could do his thing. Again, not just anyone can go straight to the high priest and get this kind of permission and this kind of blessing. Saul of Tarsus is on the rise. He's right in the middle of transitioning from promising grad student to an accomplished leader in his own right. And by the way, I'm not just saying that Paul took advantage of a political opportunity. For one thing, Jewish identity was centered, centered on the belief, on the oneness of God. What Christians believed about Jesus, the way they worshiped Jesus, this like man, it would have filled a zealous Jew with the kind of rage, the kind of anger that you feel not just about an opponent, but about a traitor. Like that's how serious it was. He would have hated Christianity. And so Saul rose up from a minor role to a major one. And it just so happened to be at a time that served his career really well. At least it would have served his career really well if it weren't for an irritating intervention. And so it was that a young Pharisee whose master Gamaliel advocated taking no action, Saul, Saul found himself initiating a major offensive, armed with letters of recommendation from the high priest. I suspect Saul fully expected to go on this little mission trip, mop up a small group of heretics, and then return to Jerusalem as the triumphant hero, right? Where the relieved Jewish leadership, whose hands are kind of tied, would say, thank you, Saul. We owe you big time. But before he could arrive there, while he was still on the road, he was intercepted. A bright light knocked him over and a voice came calling his name. He says, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Much later in the book of Acts, Paul's retelling this story, and he adds this detail. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad is not a word that we use very often. It is a sturdy, sharpened stick that you would use to herd livestock. Livestock. Turns out animals like cows with thick hides, you can't just tap them on the shoulder to get their attention. Uh, hence the sharp stick to their backside, enough to be noticed. The point, though, is that it's pointless for animals to resist a goad. They're just going to keep getting goaded until they finally move. And so in this moment, Saul hears Jesus say to him, listen, Saul, it's pointless to resist me. You can track down my people, you can stone them, you can torture them, you can fight and fight, but in the end, Saul, I'm going to win. It's pointless to resist me. And so this zealous Pharisee, who was infuriated by all this Jesus stuff, who was trying to kickstart his career, he was about to learn that his future lay not in fighting against God, but in going where Jesus wanted him to go. Saul never became the leading Jewish teacher of his day, as perhaps he had one day hoped to become. He never became the president of the Sanhedrin, the top of the pyramid, as his master Gamaliel was said to have been, which means he didn't get a comfortable apartment in the temple quarters in Jerusalem. 
He gave all that up. I mean, think about that. Leaving the firm, leaving actually the whole field when your prospects for promotion are great. He gave all that up. Talk about burning your bridges. He's never going to see the high priest again unless he's like getting stoned by the high priest for doing this. And so the first question this raises is, what would cause a person to, to do something like this? Not only does he give up a promising future, he trades all of that in and actually ends up spending several years of his life in prison because of this. Whatever you think happened to Paul, it's very clear to me that something happened to him. The Apostle Paul steps onto the pages of history, not as a Christian, not as a Jesus follower. He steps onto the pages of history as someone who is absolutely committed to eradicating Christianity off the face of the earth. And in one day, one day, it wasn't a process. It wasn't over a period of time. In one day, Paul goes from being hunter of Christians to like one of the main leaders of Christians. He went from arrest them and put them to death to spending the rest of his life telling other people they should become followers of Jesus as well. And so for me, it's, it's kind of hard to ignore the explanation given in Acts 9 that maybe the most plausible reason for Paul's, Saul's overnight transformation is he actually did meet Jesus on the road and it changed everything. That doesn't mean it was easy. It cost Saul, Paul a lot. In the beginning, his career, but that was just the beginning of his troubles. Do you realize the difficult place he's in because of his past, when Saul shows up at your small group, Christians, and says, can I be in your group? They don't, they're not comfortable with that, right? They're a little bit leery, exactly as you and I would be. Can we really trust this guy's story? Because that is quite a tale. So it took him a while to warm up to him. I find it interesting that all of this happened at a time when, when Saul wasn't even looking for a change. From his perspective, he already had everything he needed. He was well accomplished, well ahead of his peers. He had mastered the religious system that he was a part of. He wasn't looking for change. Change came looking for him. And in fact, God came looking for him. Jesus intercepts him on the road and redirects him. So, what does all of this mean for us? Um, we're not Paul. We're not being called to be the most influential Christian in world history and to author personally half of the New Testament. You're, you're probably not called to that. Um, we're just regular people with, with bills and responsibilities, and the dog every once in a while goes, uh, 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 and throws up on the carpet, and <laughs> life. So what does that have to do with us? A couple of things we can take from this. I don't know why that had to be my example of normal life. Um, first of all, if God can use, and I think this goes without saying, but I want to say it. If God can use someone like Saul, is there anyone he can't use? This man who had been systematically working to eradicate Christians becomes the greatest advocate and missionary for Christ the world's ever seen. God uses imperfect, 
unqualified, unlikely people. Scripture is full of examples like this, um, of people you and I might be tempted to write off, people with messy pasts and baggages and, and baggage and patterns of sin and a life of regrets. Even the way the world says, here's what a leader looks like, or here's someone who's going to do great things, and we have this image in our mind of how the person looks and their success and whatever. There is one ancient source that describes the Apostle Paul, and see if it fits that description for you of someone who's going to be very successful. Uh, It says that Paul was a wee little man, that he was short, bow-legged, and he had a big hook nose and a unibrow. That would be one eyebrow all the way across. And that he walked with a bit of a hobble. This little man, one eyebrow, big hook nose, balding and bow-legged. And God's like, I'm going to use you. (laughs) And, and, And his past, he was a murderer. Jacob and a bunch of other people were liars. Mary was like a teenager. Moses was in his 80s when he, when he got the call to do something for God. I just want to encourage you that God can weave together things, regrets, mistakes, pain, things we wish we could go back and do differently, lessons that we've learned the hard way, ways that we've been hurt, all of it God can use. We follow a God who wastes nothing. And in fact, for me, when I see that happen in my life, the way that he can take my mistakes and things I've learned the hard way and then use them to help someone else or to encourage someone else, it's actually one of the evidences in my life, and maybe you've experienced this, of the work of God, because only God could, could bring that back around full circle. Secondly, God is fully capable of getting our attention when he wants to. That's good news for stubborn people like me. Paul is doing everything he can to work against God's purpose, and yet God still pursues him. And Jesus says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Like, how long are we going to play this game? I can go, like, all day. Again, for me, that's good because I have to hear things a hundred times. I usually have to learn lessons the hard way. I kind of, at times, need to be prodded, jolted, goaded. And God is really good at getting our attention. He's really good at communicating. In fact, we say here often, it was his idea, communication. Is there anything God can't use to get our attention from our circumstances to other people, to a quiet moment, to the Holy Spirit speaking within us, to pain even, the difficult things that we've been through? I think God can and does sometimes do dramatic things to redirect us. But most of the time, most often, I have found in my experience, God chooses to get our attention in more subtle ways. Is that true for you? As Emily Dickinson says in one of her poems, and I kind of wonder if she's not thinking about Saul, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. (laughs) I'm kind of glad God's patient with me in helping me get it. I'm not sure that I want to know the whole full unvarnished, you know, unfiltered deal. He takes our uncertainty. He takes our reluctance. He takes our false starts, and he works with all of it. Again, sometimes he works through our pain to redirect us. C.S. Lewis says pain is sometimes God's megaphone to get our attention. Sometimes that's frustrating. But there are times when we look back on our lives, and we, we actually see the, the hand of God in hindsight. You ever have that happen where it's like, 
whoa, God was closing that door and saving me big time, or he's redirecting me or whatever it is. We matter enough to God that he honors our freedom and our choice, and he rarely overrides that. In fact, I think sometimes God's saying this. Yeah, you can do that if you want to. You can chase that rabbit. Go for it. It's just, I want to warn you ahead of time, it's not going to deliver what it promises. I actually sometimes wonder if God, in his mercy, lets us get the thing that we want so badly, the status, the success, the relationship, whatever it is, because only then are we finally in a place where we could admit we're chasing the wrong thing. I just want to encourage you that God has your best interests at heart. He wants what's best for you more than you probably want what's best for you. Paul later on writes, we know that in all things, the good, the bad, everything in between, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is not a trite Christian, well, you know, God works all things. This is a person who's been through some stuff. This is a man who can look back and go, I have no idea how I got here. All I know is that God was working in my life, bringing this moment to pass. As I get older, I would say I'm less and less worried about like missing. You know, when you're young, you feel like it's like a sci-fi thing where it's like every decision is a fork in the road that then splits off into the, another branch in the multiverse and whatever it is, but I gotta somehow find the one true path that is called God's will for my life and any little decision, I, I could miss it. And I just, I just don't think that's the way that it works. I think for a person who says, God, I desire to do your will, for the person whose life is surrendered to God, I think God's going, I'd like to see you try to mess this up. I like to see you try to miss it because I got ways, right, to communicate and to make it very, very clear. So I guess my job, your job, is to pay attention to these moments. Um, when a great moment, this uh, Russian poet, mystic, Boris Pasternak says, when a great moment knocks on the door of your life, it is often no louder than the beating of your heart. It's very easy to miss it. See, I want to get better at, like, catching these moments so that God doesn't have to like escalate and get my attention in more overt ways. I just like to, let's do the easy way, okay? Number three, God is preparing you for what he has for you to do. He's preparing you. Yes, for Paul, there is a moment of blinding epiphany. That just changes Saul's mind. That just changes his trajectory. It actually doesn't change him at all, really. Um, in fact, he has, God has a lot of things he needs to do in Paul's heart. Paul, Saul is not ready yet. I think we often miss this in telling Saul's story, that we forget that after the road to Damascus and yet before Paul did all the Paul stuff, the churches and the letters and the, the missionary activity, um, there's something very important that happens in the in-between. Paul later on talks about his conversion on the road to Damascus. And then he says, the very next thing he did after that is he says, I went after that to Arabia. Like, sounds like the desert to me. I went to the desert. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. What this means is Paul's hanging around for three years immediately after this experience in the wilderness. And then he says, after that, he went to Jerusalem for 15 days 
And then he goes back to Tarsus, home sweet home. I've changed, right? Goes back home, all his Jewish family and friends there, he's telling them all that stuff. He's there from roughly 36 to 46, common era. He's there for 10 years. Um, No church plants. No reaching out to the Gentiles. No famous letters. N.T. Wright says that Saul, we're talking about this 10 years, spent a silent decade deepening the well of scriptural reflection from which he would thereafter draw the water he needed. How often do we skip this step where he learned to be with Jesus? I'm convinced that it's after this 10 years that he's able to come to the realization and to say something like, I now consider all things a loss, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He had to go from expert to beginner. He had to forget everything he thought he knew. He had to humble himself. In other words, I think God's saying to to Saul, Paul, hey, you've been doing a lot. I want you to do nothing for 10 to 13 years. And by nothing, I actually mean it's the most important thing you could be doing, and that's learning about me, getting to know me, getting to recognize better my voice. What this means is that maybe you're here and you're waiting for the next thing. You're waiting for the change. You're waiting for the door to open or for something to happen. What if right now God is actually actively preparing you for what he has for you next? Well, I don't like that. I want right now. I want like immediate change. I want to see the, the whole agenda up front. And Paul could have said, what about the churches and what about this whole empire full of Roman Gentile people who don't know Jesus? Let's go. We've got work to do. And God says, I want you to sit here for a while. Forget about all that other stuff. I have some important things I want to do in you first. We'll get to the what I want to do through you later. If we're not careful, we often mistake God preparing us. We actually think he's punishing us or that he's like forgotten about us. And one of the things that Saul Paul teaches us is that God often does his very best work in obscurity. You're just being prepared. And then lastly, saying yes to God will likely cost you something when the time comes. One of the things this meant for Saul is that he gave up, as we said, his, his future, his career to say yes to God. He gave up accolades and renown and respect and legacy. And of course, Saul could never have dreamed that God would give all those things back to him like a hundredfold, but that's what happened. His impact in the world, his legacy for Paul ended up being, I would argue, exponentially greater than had he stayed on the path he was on. And so my last thought is this, saying yes to God. It may not cost you your career. It may not cost you your success. But when the time comes, it will likely cost you something. And the other thing I get from Paul is, When you're sacrificing for something you are passionate about, you, you parents do this all the time. You make sacrifices for your kids and you drive them places and you go home for a really awkward amount of time that you can't get anything done. Then you go back and you, 
The stuff many of you do for your kids on a regular, that sacrifice, you don't think to yourself, oh, what a sacrifice. Well, look at me, I'm giving all. No, because you love your kids and you're passionate. And I, I think it's the same for Paul. He had encountered life with Jesus that so changed his life. He's like, there's nothing else I would rather do. See these chains? Eh, I consider all things a loss. At least I get to know him. At least I get to be a part of, of what he's called me to do. The good news is the trade-off is always worth it. I consider all things a loss compared to the greatness of knowing him. Everything else takes care of itself. So I want to remind you, and I don't know where this hits you, God uses imperfect, unqualified, unlikely people exactly like you and me, and you could make the case that's really all he uses. Two, God is fully capable of getting your attention. I just want some of you to relax. If you're saying yes to him, I desire to follow your will, and my life, I surrender. Whatever, whatever it is, I, I, my answer is yes. God will make it clear. God is right now, I believe, preparing you for what he has for you to do next. And sometimes that feels like you've been forgotten or overlooked. Paul spent 13 years before he ever did anything significant uh, for the kingdom. God's preparing you. Whatever that's going to look like, and again, I'm not Paul, you're not Paul. Whatever your greater thing is, he's preparing you. And then saying yes to God will cost you, but it won't feel like a sacrifice oftentimes because there's nothing else you'd rather do um, than, than play that part in what God's given you. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Heavenly Father, it is amazing that you choose ordinary, broken, messed up people like me and I guess my friends here in this room. We thank you for that. God, thank you for the ways that you've worked in our lives and much of it has been unseen. Opening doors and closing doors and guiding us and using, not causing, but using our painful experiences to grow us, to prepare us for what's next. Thank you that you are a God who wastes absolutely nothing. You can take it and use anything. We'd say only God could do something like that. Lord, help us now in this season to be open to the ways that you're preparing us, to not rush that, to, like Saul did, like Paul did, make our number one goal to know you, to become more like you, and then later we can worry maybe about doing what you're asking us to do. Help us to be open to what you want to do in us, and the through us part, we believe, will take care of itself. God, give us the courage to say yes when it becomes clear, when we know what our next step is. And I pray that you give us joy in that process, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.